there. I'm your friend Bev, host of Stop Psychoanalyzing Me, a podcast about mental health. I interview experts and ask questions about mental disorders that all of us might be curious about. Come join me. Today we have Dr. Stephanie Casson joining us. Dr. Casson is an associate professor and the director of the Healthy Eating and Lifestyle Laboratory at Ryerson University in Toronto. Dr. Casson's clinical and research interests are in the area of disordered eating, obesity, and weight loss surgery. Her research examines the psychological predictors of weight loss surgery outcomes, as well as psychological interventions that may improve these outcomes. Stephanie, I'm so excited that you're here today. I'm so excited to be here today. So for the listeners today who haven't read your work, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Uh, What exactly do you study? I study eating disorders quite broadly. I often say that I study eating disorders across the weight spectrum from individuals who are of lower weight to individuals in larger bodies who end up undergoing bariatric weight loss surgery in order to try to improve their health. So you study folks with all sorts of problems related to eating. Yeah, and many of the issues that sometimes accompany that, like body image issues, overvaluation of weight and shape, those sorts of things. What exactly is an eating disorder? Eating disorders as a category refers to a group of disorders. The one thing that they have in common is essentially a disturbance in eating behaviors, which essentially means that they have often preoccupation with weight and shape and that that can cause a variety of unhealthy eating behaviors. So when we talk about eating disorders, there's not just one particular eating disorders, but really a variety And the way that some of those maladaptive eating behaviors can play out are in the form of really restricting dietary intake. So really severely limiting the types of foods that people might consume. For other people, they might end up binge eating or do different types of behaviors to try to compensate for binge eating. But all of them have this quality of engaging in behaviors designed to to minimize weight, to, to keep weight down. As I was hearing that, I was thinking of maybe anorexia with regards to someone trying to restrict their weight. And I I know another eating disorder that we hear about, at least a lot in the media, is bulimia. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about what those two disorders are, just generally, and then maybe talk about if there are any other eating disorders. Are those the only two? (laughs) You're right that those tend to be the ones that people talk about most often. So when you hear about eating disorders within the media, or if somebody refers to having like a friend or family member with an eating disorder, often that is what they're referring to. And I think anorexia probably is one that people often associate with eating disorders because due to the low weight that people have, it's maybe the one that's most obvious to other people. Anorexia essentially is when a person doesn't take in enough calories to maintain a weight that would be considered normal or healthy for their height and age. 
So they tend to take in fewer calories. They might engage in behaviors like excessive exercise to try to keep their weight low. And despite being a pretty low weight, they have a fear of weight gain. And they actually have a tendency to perceive their body as being larger than it actually is. Like they'll actually view themselves as larger? Yeah, there's some evidence that when they look in the mirror, for example, that they perceive their body and specific parts of their body, like their stomach or their thighs, for example, to actually be larger than how other people perceive them. So when they make comments about being fat, despite other people looking at them and seeing themselves as seeing them as thin, that they might actually see themselves as being larger than what other people do. Wow, I had no idea about that. And then the other disorder we hear about is bulimia. Yeah, and bulimia is another, I think, common one that people think of when they think of eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Bulimia essentially means that people have what we consider to be objectively large eating binges. And objectively large just means that under similar circumstances, they eat much larger than what most people would eat under those kind of circumstances. Okay. Um, so a person, for example, might have an entire bag of chips and then three chocolate bars. And this might be a short time period after they've had a, a full size dinner, for example. And it really has this quality of loss of control over their eating. Like they couldn't just stop eating anytime that they wanted to, or they almost have to keep eating until whatever they're, whatever they have in front of them is finished. So that's the binge eating component of it. And then bulimia also means that they engage in behaviors to try to compensate for the eating binges. Like vomiting is one that I know of. Yeah, that would be the most common example that people think of with bulimia. So it includes self-induced vomiting. For other people, they might use laxatives. Uh, other people might use diuretics. And for others, it's engaging in really excessive exercise, specifically for the purpose of trying to compensate for a binge. I had no idea that there were all sorts of other ways other than vomiting. Yeah, yeah, there's quite a, a number of compensatory behaviors. And for some people, they might actually just engage in really severe fasting following a binge. But again, the key factor here is that, that they're doing it specifically to try to compensate for the calories that they took in during a binge. On this topic of these behaviors that I, I really had no idea about that folks might do to lose weight, are there any other eating disorders that seem to go under the radar or that folks don't really know about? Yeah, there's a few other eating disorders. So one that's a, a relatively more recent one, when we think about like the diagnostic manual that we use to diagnose eating disorders, and that one's called binge eating disorder. Binge eating disorder is very similar to bulimia. The difference being that people with binge eating disorder don't regularly compensate for the eating binges. So they would just have the eating binges okay. without um, specifically like purging afterwards or over-exercising. So that's binge eating disorder. There's another one that not a lot of people know about called purging disorder. And it again is similar to bulimia, but in this case, people purge or compensate even though they haven't actually had objectively a large eating binge. And then there's also one called night eating syndrome, and that's where people take in a lot of calories closer, like in, in the evening hours. In some cases, it might be like a disproportionate amount of their calories come at the end of the day. And in some cases, people actually have a tendency to wake up during the night and feel like they can't get back to sleep unless they eat. And so again, a lot of their calories are taken in in the evening. 
I had no idea about these other kinds of disorders because it seems like they're not really talked about in the media. Yeah, certainly not as commonly talked about. And and I think it's also important just on the topic of eating disorders that there are what we'd consider to be diagnosable eating disorders. These are ones that are within like the diagnostic manual that we use to diagnose eating disorders. But there's also a very large spectrum of what I just refer to as disordered eating. So they don't necessarily fall into a specific eating disorder category, and they're really on a a spectrum of severity. And those are much, much more common in the population. Things like emotional eating, for example, grazing on food all throughout the day and feeling like they've lost control over eating. Why do some people develop eating disorders and some people don't? When we think about eating disorders, there's not just one specific factor that contributes to the development of an eating disorder. There is definitely some evidence that genetics do play a role. And that's come from these really powerful twin studies that have looked at people, uh, genetic twins, who are identical twins, and then were actually raised in separate environments. Maybe they were adopted out into different families. And those studies have shown that the closer your genetic relatedness is, the greater your likelihood is of having an eating disorder if your twin sibling has had an eating disorder. Mm. And so, for example, identical twins are more likely to have eating disorders than fraternal twins or what's called dizygotic twins that share 50% of their genes. So I think that provides some powerful evidence that genetics at least play a role, but that's not the whole picture because we also know that environment plays a role. Another example is personality traits. So there's been some research looking at just across eating disorders, what seem to be some personality traits that put people at elevated risk. And what's come out from that, uh, actually in a research study that I did, just a systematic review of the literature, was that perfectionism really seems to be a factor that puts people at risk, both of anorexia and bulimia and some of these other eating disorders that I've mentioned. So when people have this perfectionistic striving of always trying to meet a higher and higher bar, it can be really um, easy for that to also apply to weight and shape and eating behaviors. It's so interesting that you bring up this idea of perfectionism, because something I've seen at least a lot on Instagram or on other forms of social media is this idea of body positivity and how we should embrace ourselves and embrace our flaws, embrace who we are as we are. And I'm wondering, do you think that sort of movement, this body positivity movement, can be helpful in combating eating disorders. I'm glad that you raised that point because just on the topic of thinking about the factors that might contribute to eating disorders in addition to genetics and certain personality traits that might elevate people's risk, like perfectionism, like impulsivity, like proneness to anxiety and depression. Another one of the factors that has been shown is just sociocultural influences. Mm -hmm. Living within a culture, wherever that culture is, living within a culture that tends to idolize the thin body type, to idolize, you know, 
spelt, toned, all those things that we're supposed to be. Any culture that idolizes that and puts that up on a pedestal tends to increase people's risk of an eating disorder because it shows that this is what everybody should be striving to. Right. And when you couple that with somebody who has a genetic susceptibility to an eating disorder and perfectionism, Mm. you can imagine how that perfectionistic striving can then end up leading to an eating disorder. Yeah. It almost seems like the perfect storm of qualities that kind of come together that could lead someone to have disordered eating. Yeah, it really can be. And if we know that, for example, that negative body image can be a risk factor for eating disorders. And the body positivity movement may be helpful in promoting a more positive body image. I think that can be helpful. It's interesting when people think about body image, they often think of negative and positive body image being on two ends of the same spectrum, but they're actually two different spectrums. So it's possible for a person to actually feel dissatisfied with certain aspects of their appearance, having negative body image regarding certain aspects of their appearance but to also be able to develop positive body image by focusing on certain aspects of their appearance that they actually do like, focusing more on body function, like what their body is actually capable of doing for them and not just aesthetically what their body looks like. And so I think body positivity can be helpful in that regard too. Almost like there might be a trickle down effect then. Like if I really like one part of my body, maybe then I'll learn to appreciate the other parts. Yeah, I think body appreciation is really important. And with the body positivity movement, another real strength of that movement is that it also promotes just greater diversity of body types that are out there, which we don't typically see within a more mainstream media. And so just being able to see that there's not just one body ideal that's a thin body type, but that bodies are beautiful and they come in all different shapes (laughs) and sizes and colors. And I think that can be helpful. Also, it tends to be coupled with the health at every size movement, which I think can be helpful as well. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about that movement? Yeah. Health at every size moves away from looking just, you know, specifically at body size as being an indication of health, because there does tend to be this assumption out there, an incorrect assumption that thin bodies equal healthy and that larger bodies equal unhealthy. And that can really lead to weight-based stigma. It can also lead to disordered eating. And the truth is we really can't make an assumption about whether a person is healthy or not based on their actual body weight. There's a lot of people who come in heavier bodies and they tend to be really athletic. They take very good care of their bodies. They're athletic. They engage in exercise. They don't have any like health indicators that would suggest Um, that there's any medical issues associated with them being at a higher weight. And so it's really important to look, you know, more at, at health than just body size and weight. That's really interesting, that idea of health at, health at every size. And I think you're right. People can absolutely make snap judgments that folks are unhealthy because they're larger. And, and, and I'm wondering too, Stephanie, back to this topic of eating disorders, Can people who have uh, a healthy body mass index or even folks with an overweight body mass index, can they also have an eating disorder? They certainly can. So in fact, even though when we think of eating disorders, we often probably think of anorexia and lower weight eating disorders. In reality, people who have eating disorders are actually more likely to have a BMI that would be considered within the healthy range or 
hard to even know what term to use. A healthy BMI, normal BMI. I think that there's issues with using both of those terms, but essentially what it means is a body mass index of 20 would be considered to be a normal or healthy BMI. And so most people with eating disorders actually do have a BMI of 20 or higher. They're more likely to have a healthier normal BMI than they are to be underweight. Oh, wow. Okay. I had no idea that actually folks in within a healthy BMI range might be actually more likely to have an eating disorder. Yeah. And I think in terms of actual prevalence of eating disorders, just how common they are within the population, bulimia and binge eating disorder are significantly more common than anorexia is. So again, just because our memory and our attention tends to focus maybe more on anorexia, you know, it'd be more common for people who have eating disorders to actually be of normal weight or even uh, heavier weight. Do you know the prevalence rates of these disorders? I'd be curious to hear them. Yeah, in big studies looking at just prevalence uh, across like large community samples, it looks like for anorexia, it's about 0.5% of the population. With bulimia, about 2 to 3% of the population. And then for binge eating disorder, probably about 3 to 5% of the population. So much more common than we might realize. Yeah. And on the topic of, you know, like whether people who are of a higher BMI can have an eating disorder, I think it's also important to point out on that topic that that obesity in itself is not an eating disorder. I, I think sometimes people might look at an individual with a larger body and just make an assumption that they have an eating disorder. And Although it's true that some eating disorders can result in weight-promoting eating behaviors like binge eating, it would be false to assume that anybody who's in a larger body has an eating disorder, just like it would be false to assume that anybody who is quite underweight, that it must be due to an eating disorder. Recently, I spoke to an expert on addictions, and when I was thinking about this episode, I was thinking about food being an addiction. Do you think people can be addicted to food? I think this is such an interesting topic and actually a topic of some research that I've done too. I think this topic tends to be really controversial because initially people thought, how can you possibly be addicted to something that you need for survival? Mm -hmm. Unlike alcohol, other substances of abuse, gambling, those sorts of things. Like, how is it possible that you could be addicted to food because you actually need to eat? And so how is that even possible? And So I think it's important to note that it's like a controversial topic, but that there has been more evidence recently suggesting that it is possible for some people to have almost an addictive-like response to very specific types of foods. Um, So it's not just all food in general, but specifically foods that we consider to be ultra-processed, Um, highly refined, hyper palatable, meaning that they're just really, really yummy. Essentially, they're created or engineered to be really, really yummy foods. And there is some evidence um, for some individuals that it can almost trigger a response in the brain that's similar to what would be found for other substances of abuse. It really um, activates all of the pleasure centers within the brain. I'm just thinking of all the food scientists behind making this hyper palatable food and It almost feels like a bit of a conspiracy (laughs) to make food taste better so that we consume more. There there certainly is a whole field of research behind it, trying to create Mm. these hyperpalatable foods. 
I, I think one thing that's a bit unique compared to say cigarettes, like in cigarettes, nicotine specifically has been identified as the addictive agent within cigarettes. Within alcohol, it's like ethyl alcohol that's the addictive ingredient. And with food, at least currently, there's not a specific addictive agent, a specific like addictive property that has been identified. And so, whereas with cigarettes, you might be able to regulate like nicotine specifically, it's hard to know when it comes down to foods. If people were going to move in a direction of regulating certain types of foods, what specifically that food ingredient would be. But I, I think it's important just for now to just recognize that, yeah, some foods, they might be more difficult to put down, like Doritos, you know, or certain foods, like you can't just have one. There probably is a reason why it feels more difficult to have just one of certain foods. Well, I'm wondering too about what you were saying earlier about emotional eating and how food might just bring so much comfort to someone. And I'm wondering if it's really because food can be really soothing for people. Could that be why some folks are quote unquote addicted to food? Yeah, it certainly can, in the same way that substances of abuse can be really rewarding, right? Like it activates just dopamine and pleasure centers and things that make us feel good. And if we've been in a a negative mood or feeling depressed or anxious or something that that on its own might be comforting. Just on the topic of food addiction, I think it's also helpful to point out that there's pretty high comorbidity between sort of the other eating disorders that we've been talking about, like anorexia and bulimia and binge eating disorder, that individuals that have those specific eating disorders are also more likely to endorse feeling addicted to certain foods. Oh, wow. And I should also mention like food addiction right now, it's not actually a diagnosis within the manual that we use to diagnose. It's not listed as an eating disorder. It's not currently listed as a substance use disorder. So it's not in the manual, but it is important to note that a lot of people actually do endorse or like self-identify as being a food addict. About 10% actually of community samples say that they feel addicted to food. What I remember from my conversation about addictions on this podcast, an addiction really is when you continue to use a substance or engage in a behavior, even when it's unhelpful. And so for so many people to say that they're engaging in food addiction-like behaviors, like that actually sounds like really distressing for a lot of people. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of overlap in the symptoms that people endorse. I actually did a study quite a long time ago when I was in graduate school with women who had binge eating disorder. And what I did is I took the diagnostic criteria that we use to diagnose a substance use disorder. And I just modified the criteria. And rather than asking about substance use, I just substituted it with binge eating and asked the exactly the same questions. And in that study, about 91% of women who had binge eating disorder would have met criteria essentially for an addiction. Oh, Yeah, it's a, a pretty high number. And they are saying that they feel really preoccupied with certain foods. They have intense cravings. They spend a lot of time trying to get the food or recovering from eating too much of the food. They had a lot of difficulty cutting back. Usually at least once a week, people were trying to cut back and make these changes, but it was really difficult to stay away from certain foods. And also that they continued to eat those hyper palatable, like highly processed foods, even though they knew that it might have been contributing to a health problem for them, like maybe increasing their weight or Mm -hmm. 
contributing to diabetes or something that they still had a lot of difficulty cutting down. So there certainly looks like there's a lot of parallels in people's actual experience of food addiction compared to other substances of abuse. What do we do if we notice this in ourselves? What would be the first step for someone, maybe someone who's listening to this podcast or someone who's noticing that they're having disordered eating behavior? What's their first step if they want to get help? It's a great question. And it's almost hard to answer just based on the different types of eating disorders that are out Mm. there. But I think across different types of eating disorders, whether we're talking about treatment for anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, food addiction, that the recommendations really are to eat regularly throughout the day. I think in today's culture, it can be very difficult to get quite busy and not necessarily plan for meals and snacks. And then you realize that you've been on the go working and multitasking for six hours and that you haven't eaten. And when you're feeling really, really hungry and deprived and just don't have much energy, usually the first thing that we reach for is something that actually is like a you know hyper-processed, refined food because they're really quick. And they yes. give us that quick fix that we need for energy, but they're not necessarily helpful from a nutritional standpoint. Not to demonize those foods, because I think it's important to have all types of foods in moderation and not, you know, forbid certain foods because that can set it up so that we do crave more of those foods that we don't allow ourselves to eat. But I do think it's important to eat just regular meals and snacks throughout the day so that we never get to a point of being super, super hungry. Another thing that we can do is when we do eat, try to eat in a designated eating area, like a dining room table, not be multitasking at the same time, not be watching Netflix and doing other types of activities, responding to emails, but really just to try to sit down, enjoy that experience of eating, be mindful while we're eating and not be trying to multitask with a number of things at the same time. Mm -hmm. And what would that be helpful for? Is that so that we don't overeat or what would that do for us? Yeah, it can be helpful just in terms of being more mindful of food that we are eating because when we eat really quickly and we're multitasking and doing things at the same time, it can be harder just to pay attention to our own signals of hunger and satiety, just how satisfied we're feeling from the food that we're eating. Also, when we are multitasking or say watching television at the same time, it can be easy just to lose track of how much you're eating. Imagine going to the theater, popcorn, you just look down and it's like, where did all the popcorn go without (laughs) really having a recollection of eating it? And so from that perspective, it can be important and helpful just to take a specific amount of food that you're planning on eating or to eat it at a designated eating area. Another reason for that recommendation is that if we eat on the couch every single night. It's just a habit that we get into. It just becomes conditioned. So even if we're not actually hungry, we're not particularly craving anything. Once we go into that same environment and sit on the couch and turn on Netflix or whatever our routine is, that that just tends to trigger activate urges or cravings because we've just associated that with eating over time. So that's almost like when you lie in bed and you might fall asleep really quickly because you've associated the bed with sleep, you're saying that actually can happen just sitting on our couch and pairing the couch with snack time. Absolutely. Yeah. So in uh, fancy psychology language, that's stimulus control. So we set up our environment in a way that's conducive for doing certain behaviors and trying to undo bad habits that have formed over time just through associations that we've built up. That's a really excellent tip. I love that. 
it's a bit more serious or not to trivialize those experiences, but like, would we go to our family doctor if we're worried about eating disorder behavior or is there a helpline folks can call? Like, what if we're really feeling stuck? Yeah, so talking to your doctor would be a great like first point of contact, especially if it, it might be that you would need a referral for an eating disorder program, because often physicians do have to make those referrals to programs. However, there's also a number of like phone numbers to call, websites to check out. There's one called NEDIC, which is the National Eating Disorder Information Center. And they provide a great resource, actually, of people who work within the community who treat eating disorders, as well as some hospital-based programs. So in addition to just having good information on their website, it's a great place to just look into potential referral options. That would be another great idea. And then there's often within any given city, some nonprofit organizations that sometimes offer groups regarding eating disorders or body image. So that can also be helpful to check out. What if we have a friend who might be engaging in these behaviors? Is there a way we could give them these resources or is that not recommended? How do we approach someone that we think has an eating disorder? It's a great question and, and probably one of the more you know like commonly asked questions because people typically are concerned about loved ones and don't really know how to approach them for fear that the person might feel ashamed if they get called out on certain eating behaviors, you know, might feel really self-conscious having these kind of conversations. And so I think the best approach is just to be supportive, to express concern if there are like specific behaviors that you're noticing or like a sudden uh, weight loss in the case of anorexia that you're maybe noticing. And really just to express like a willingness to listen to the individual, not necessarily rushing right towards them having to seek assessment and treatment, but just offering to listen and to support the individual in whatever way you possibly can. If they do seem receptive to seeing somebody, you could certainly offer just to look into different resources that might be available and provide them with those resources. And I think just to revisit the topic from time to time, acknowledging that sometimes that like intervention approach of just approaching somebody and laying out all the evidence and forcing them into assessment or treatment can often make people feel kind of more defensive. And so it can be important in those situations to just be gentle and supportive and revisit the conversation. It might be something that just evolves over time and might need a number of conversations Obviously, in some cases, people might be at really, really significant medical risk if they've lost a lot of weight. And in in those cases, maybe you do have to escalate to getting them in to see a doctor. But yeah, in other cases, I think just to be supportive, to listen, to offer, to look into resources for the person and really just to be a supportive ear. Um, And and it really sounds like being non-judgmental of them. Yeah, I think that's really important because guilt and shame are really high in eating disorders. A lot of the behaviors that people engage in actually are quite secretive, right? So a lot of eating disorders actually do kind of like fly under the radar. People aren't necessarily aware of them because many of the behaviors are done in secret. People don't typically binge and purge in front of other people, Mm -hmm. you know, with even with weight loss, people might do things to try to cover up the extent of weight that they've lost. And so to be called out by somebody can, at least in the short term, increase that feeling of shame. And so I think it's really important to approach them from a place of just not being judgmental, just trying to be supportive and just trying to offer to help out in whatever way you can. That seems like it could be really powerful for someone. Yeah. And I think just to add to that too, 
Another helpful thing is also just to model healthy eating behaviors and positive body image around that person. Because sometimes what happens is a, a parent, for example, might say, I'm concerned that my daughter has an eating disorder. How do I approach them? I'm really concerned about them. And then at the same time, that the mother or the father might be on a diet, might be on a fast or a cleanse of some sort, might look at themselves in the mirror and comment on their own weight or make a comment about somebody else's weight. And so it's really important, in addition to supporting the person who might have an eating disorder, to also really be doing your best to model positive behaviors yourself and to ban fat talk. I think that's a great recommendation for everybody. What to does just, that mean? To ban fat talk. So... <laughs> Sometimes it's just a way that people relate to each other, right? If you think about, I mean, I think it comes to mind more with women, but, you know, adolescent girls or women within a, a workout class of some sort, it sort of becomes just this normative thing that people talk about their bodies. They talk about things that they dislike about their bodies, you know, constantly critiquing or negatively evaluating themselves mm-hmm. and just kind of being around that, even if you're not making the comments yourself, just being around that can really set up this belief that weight and shape and appearance is the most important thing and that, you know, that people should be negative or critical of themselves. It's like this attentional bias to just focus on things that people dislike about their bodies. And that can really foster negative body image over time. I've heard friends tell me you should never comment about someone's weight loss because that could maybe lead to more disordered eating in them, or you don't know what's going on. Maybe they went through a medical treatment or had some sort of stressful life event that led to significant weight loss. Do you think that's that advice is helpful, that we shouldn't comment on others' weight loss? I would agree that it's best to avoid appearance-related comments altogether. And just to recognize, it's important to recognize that those comments often are Mm well-intentioned. People don't have a negative intent and they are often intending to just praise a person for just what they consider to be improvements, perhaps to people's weight or appearance in some way. And even though those comments are well-intentioned, they can provide positive reinforcement for weight loss and can contribute to having a person develop or maintain an eating disorder over time. Specifically, people who are susceptible, I wouldn't say that one person's positive comment about weight loss is going to completely cause an eating disorder in somebody who wasn't otherwise susceptible. However, you do often hear anecdotally stories who people say that they just started losing weight, just kind of started as a diet and then became this diet that went wrong. And so they might start off as a diet, get some positive feedback from other people, maybe get increased attention from other people. And then it becomes this cycle where they feel like they have to keep losing weight in order to get that positive reinforcement or praise. And so those kind of comments over time can just contribute to the belief that everyone notices my weight or I need to be thin in order to be liked or noticed. Or if I gain weight, people will judge or criticize me. So I think, yeah, generally it would just be best to avoid appearance-related comments altogether, even though they often are well-intentioned. Just to conclude our interview here, we've talked about a lot of different topics, and I'm wondering, what should people know about eating disorders that we haven't spoken about yet? I mentioned that eating disorders 
at their core tend to be associated with concern or over concern or overvaluation with weight and shape. But I want to make it clear that eating disorders aren't simply about weight and shape, that those might be factors that contribute to the initial development of an eating disorder, but that the factors that maintain eating disorders can actually be quite different. I actually mentioned earlier that eating disorder behaviors can really serve a lot of different functions for different people. So for some people, for example, people who are restricting food intake, that might be to help them gain a sense of control. It's not specific to weight and shape, but they just have this sense of control when things otherwise feel pretty chaotic. Okay. With some other people, eating disorder behaviors might actually be a way of communicating distress when they can't generally tell people that they're going through a difficult time. And for a number of people, the eating disorder behaviors really help, at least in the short term, to regulate negative emotions that they might be experiencing. Things like depression, anxiety, anger. And so it's a way of, of regulating those types of emotions. And so it would be false to just tell people, you know, you look great or your body is great. You know, why do you have to have an eating disorder? Because at, at their core, even though it might yeah, be associated with the development of an eating disorder that they're maintained for a whole number of other reasons. So that would be one point. I think the other point I'd want people to know about eating disorders is that they are treatable. Hmm. We actually do have good treatments for eating disorders. You know, in the case of anorexia, sometimes treatment does take a little bit longer. It requires typically a more intensive treatment. The treatment might have to last a little bit longer, but that anorexia is treatable. And there's also really, really good treatments for bulimia, for binge eating disorder. There's some beginning research looking at treatments for food addiction. And so there's reason to feel hopeful if a person has an eating disorder, that treatment that can be helpful and that the early that you intervene and seek treatment, the better. So do that today. Reach out if it's something that you're concerned about. It was such a pleasure having you on. I've learned so much. Thank you very much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it too. And that was today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was hosted by Bev Catherine and produced by Yuri Hladio. Podcasting isn't free. Consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com. You'll get early access to episodes and other exclusive content. You can find us on patreon.com slash stop psychoanalyzing me. Until next time. Music.